0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This Saturday's program is being pre-recorded on May 6th, 2020 for broadcast at Christagenia this Saturday, May 9th. Once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to help us address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seed Line Doctrine? And this is part 13 of this series, and it's subtitled Children of Wrath. Truthvids hello. How are you? Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Yeah, great to be back. And yeah, this is uh, certainly one of the most crucial parts of Two Seed Line, and maybe even the Bible, that understanding that there are two separate races And one of us, one of those is us who can repent and have an afterlife. And then there is another race, which Weissman calls hybrids, but he never went into it, that there's these races that are part Adamic, part beast, part fallen angel, however you wish to describe it, and there's no afterlife for them, and there's no mercy. So Christ is not this all loving universal God that wants to unite all races that many people falsely believe, and he's going to destroy them all. And um, just lastly, unfortunately, our people, they really have an enormous difficulty in truly understanding that they always have it, have the wrong perspective. They always try to justify Universalism by trying to find just one in a hundred or one in a thousand of these non-whites that's okay. And by doing that, they try to justify that they will be saved if there's just one that's okay. And rather than looking at the other 99 who are destroying us. Right, Bill?
0: Well, well right. Absolutely. I hope I
1: explained that properly.
0: It, it's, well, well, right. I, I mean, it's certainly valid. The, the um Okay. In in Genesis, you have um, Isaac's wife, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, saying, my heart is troubled because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like Esau did, then my life is useless to me. It's worthless. Why? Why would she say that? And that um, awoken Isaac to the fact that Esau couldn't inherit the birthright. That that's why the blessings went to Jacob, and he immediately told Jacob. I think it's Genesis chapter um, twenty-nine. He immediately told Jacob after Rebecca said that to go and take a wife of his own people in Padanaram, and if he did that, then the blessings. Made and the promises made to Abraham would come to him. And Jacob did that. And a couple of chapters later, maybe it's Genesis chapter 36, Yahweh God verified that the promises would come down to Jacob and not to Esau because Esau was a race mixer. And Paul later explains that in Hebrews chapter 12, that Esau was a fornicator and a profane person so he could not find repentance and inherit the blessings because his mother understood the consequences of his race mixing of his taking these hittite wives so Weizmann's view never explains why the hittite women couldn't be converted to be believers in the religion of abraham why their children could never be accepted by god and later on in the prophet malachi and even paul quotes this in the new testament yahweh said jacob i loved and esau i hated and paul quotes that in romans comparing the edomites and israelites of his own time as we're going to explain here so weissman's position never explains why these Hittites are rejected and can't be converted. And Weissman's position never explains why the children of Israel were told when they went into the land of Canaan to exterminate every single man, woman, and child, that none of them were any good. And if they didn't exterminate them, that they would suffer the consequences of that interminably (laughs) so here we are and we have these canaanites still among us today and we're still suffering the consequences of that to this day but the weissman view of scripture the universalist view of scripture prevailed that doesn't mean that the word of god changed these canaanites are still going to be destroyed it's in Malachi, it's in Obadiah, it's in Zechariah, it, it's throughout the prophets, and it's throughout the New Testament. But they refuse to believe that in the New Testament, father means father and seed means seed or offspring. They refuse to believe that.
1: Yeah, and, and also um, Isaac didn't just say go find, you know, go find a wife or go and find uh, a white wife. He very specifically said, go to this family, because he knew their racial makeup. He wanted to absolutely make sure. It was the children of LeBan, wasn't it? Or daughters of LeBan, sorry.
0: Well, well, right. It had to be a wife of his own people. And and it was actually like a second cousin, his wife. Both of his wives, right? If he didn't get a wife from his own people... And that was the only way he could assure that he got a, um, a a wife from his own tribe, is to go back to his own people. And and that, we see, is the requirement, basically, to inherit the blessings and promises that were passed down to Jacob through Abraham. That hasn't changed to this day. That's the only way Jacob could be assured that he didn't end up with a Canaanite or a Hittite wife. and And... And, and his parents could be assured that their bloodline would carry on. So that was the ideal and that's still the ideal today. That should still be the ideal today. We should still hold that ideal. Sadly, because of universalists like Charles Weissman, not even many Christian identity people hold that ideal, which is incredible. Okay. In our last presentation addressing Charles Weissman's book, What About the seed Line Doctrine, we began to answer his contention where he said that the Jews that Jesus was talking to in John 8 were true Israelites. They were not hybrids like those called Jews today, and they were not the seed of the serpent or king. And, of course, we've already disagreed with that, but we're going to um, discuss it further this this evening. Later in this fourth chapter of his book, Weissman states, speaking of the words of Christ, that words may be spoken figuratively, symbolically, allegorically, poetically, typically, or anti-typically. But he fails to mention anything of understanding words in their historical context, their original historical context, which is an important aspect of understanding any real life narrative or discussion from the past. None of the Judeo Christian commentaries upon which Weissman has relied, as his citations throughout this book indicate, none of them had ever interpreted the words of Christ or his apostles through the proper historical context of the captivities of Israel, the relatively small remnant which returned to Judea and the history of that remnant over the 450-year period from the time of Ezra to the birth of Christ. None of them consider what happened. They only take it for granted that all of these people are Israelites. And the truth is that most of them are not Israelites. Once we realize who most of them are, then we can understand the division in the new testament in his voluminous antiquities of the judeans in book 13 flavius josephus described in detail how john hyrcanus the high priest around 129 bc had conquered several of the cities of palestine which had formerly belonged to Israel and Judah, but which were occupied by the Edomites since the 5th century B.C., or perhaps even the 6th century. In that same book, Josephus later described how in the days of Alexander Janius, a successor of Hyrcanus, he had done the same thing in 30 other towns or regions in Palestine during his long rule as high priest in Jerusalem from 103 BC to about 76 BC. Both of these rulers, John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius, had forcibly converted the Edomites, whom they had conquered, to Judaism. The Edomites accepted the conversion, and that is also explained by Josephus. These passages are cited and described in detail at Christigenia in several papers, notably in Part 12 of the Commentary on Romans, where... In relation to Romans chapter 9, we explained the history and the relationship between Jacob and Esau, between the Israelites and the Edomites in Judea at the time of Christ. When Judea was conquered and subjected by Rome in 63 BC, all of these Edomites, as well as the Israelite remnant in Jerusalem, Galilee and Samaria, and all of the other inhabitants of Judea were incorporated into a single kingdom subject to Rome. The Hasmoneans continued as kings. The Hasmoneans were the line of the high priests. They continued as kings, although there were revolts against Roman rule. During those revolts, Herod the Edomite allied himself with the Romans against his own in-laws as he had married a woman of the Hasmoneans, and he was appointed king after the Romans had once again prevailed. Herod then proceeded to wipe out the appointed king, uh, I'm sorry, to wipe out the Hasmoneans and the chief men of Jerusalem, killing even his own wife. He killed her family, then he killed her, and he killed the sons that he had by her. And he appointed his own compatriots into the priesthood and many other positions of power. Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous Greek geographer who wrote perhaps 70 or 80 years before Josephus, had mentioned on several occasions in book 16 of his Geography That in his own time in Judea, Judeans and Edomites, Edomians, and others had lived together sharing the same laws and customs. And in Greek, the Edomites are called Edomians. So Strabo corroborates the circumstances of which Josephus would later explain the history that these Edomites were living in Judea and they were sharing all the same laws and customs as the so-called Jews. This is the history which Weissman and all mainstream commentators ignore when considering the differences between Christ and his adversaries and why he said to them things like, but you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you in John chapter 10. It's not, the Judeo-Christians claim that the Jews are not Jesus' sheep because they didn't believe him. But that's not what Christ said. Christ said they didn't believe him because they were not his sheep. They were not his people in the first place. So the Judeo-Christians take the words of Christ and actually reverse the meaning in order to teach their universalism but they're making a lie because it's not what he said in john chapter 10. only once the historical context is properly understood are those words properly understood
1: and that's our uh, two witnesses right strabo and josephus that prove that the descendants of cain we're in there and that's what led to the constant arguments and the crucifixion and just what all you said.
0: Absolutely. And and Paul of Tarsus is a third witness and Christ himself is a fourth witness. Why would he even say to the churches in in Anatolia two of them? He said it to two churches in Anatolia, Christian churches to beware of those who say they are Judeans but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Why would he say Judeans but are not? Because Judean, what was basically first a name belonging to Judah, and according to the law of God, you would expect a Judean to be a Judahite, but the Maccabees violated that law by converting the Edomites, to Judaism. So they became known as Judeans and later Jews. They became known as Judeans, but they weren't Judeans. They were Edomites. So maybe from the viewpoint of man, because they were circumcised and and living in the same land and practicing the religion, they were Judeans. But from the viewpoint of God, they certainly were not Judeans. They were circumcised Edomites pretending to be Judeans. Why would he use those terms if he wasn't talking about Edomites or or people of other races and nations in Judea? So as we mentioned in our last presentation, Paul of Tarsus had written in Romans chapter 9 that not all of those in Israel were of Israel. Then he went on to compare Jacob and Esau, where he was praying for those who were actually his kinsmen according to the flesh. But we must ask, why would Paul even mention Jacob and Esau together in that context where he's praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh? if at least some of those people had not been Edomites, descended from Esau? If the context of the division in Judea was merely a religious difference between believers and apostates, why would Paul explain that he was praying only for his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites? to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Why would Paul even say that? And then go on to compare Jacob and Esau. If not all of Israel is of Israel because a lot of them are of Esau, and that's why he's comparing Jacob and Esau. It is in relation to this that Paul then proceeded to compare Jacob and Esau, Romans chapter 9, contrasting the Israelites as vessels of mercy to the Edomites who are vessels of destruction. Romans chapter 9 is an entire racial message explaining that, There are two races in Judea, that that is the reason for the division in Judea, that these Edomites are vessels of destruction and not the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. That's very clear in Romans chapter 9. When we correlate these words of Paul, with the words of the prophets Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, and Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 35, and the descriptions of Judea at the time of Christ, which are found in the histories of Strabo and Josephus. Then we find the words of Christ to his adversaries in John chapters 8 and 10 are literally and historically true. And we do not have to twist any of their meanings in order to understand them as the Gnostics, the philosophers, and the later Universalist, Roman Catholic, and Greek Orthodox churches had been forced to do because they ignored that history or they were ignorant of that history. As Joshua Christ had explained in Matthew chapter 13, He came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So he revealed the contrasting origins and destinies of the wheat and the tares. When he said that, there are things which are not explicit in the Old Testament, but which are certainly there once the words of Christ are understood, which illuminate them the Kenites, the Rephaim, and other groups which did not descend from Adam and Noah are all together in the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 15. Several centuries later, when the children of Israel invaded the land of Canaan after the Exodus, they were told to exterminate every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. And they were warned how these Canaanites would torment them and cause them to sin if they did not exterminate them throughout the rest of the Old Testament.
1: and um, Go on. Sorry, Bill, I was just going to say, whenever you have a white population and a non-white, if they start intermingling, even if the white population starts very high over the centuries, that non-white population is going to keep growing and growing, and the white population will continually diminish until eventually the white white factor's just gone completely. And and we see that exact same thing in the kingdom of Israel. It took a long time. Right. Basic maths that that's the inevitable outcome.
0: And it took 500 years in the kingdom of Israel until um, Yahweh God was upset with them to the point where he created the situation where the Babylonians and Assyrians came in to invade them and take them all off into captivity for their punishment, 500 years from, from the time of, um, the end of the judges period to the time of the last deportations of Israel and Judah by the Assyrians and Babylonians. It's roughly 500 years, but, well, we see the same situation happening in the West today where these other races have been accepted and, Christian men and women have adopted the customs and habits of the other races. How many um, American or British youth today are singing hip-hop and dressing like niggers and, and dating blacks and intermingling with them? It's the same exact process all over again. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it is fully evident that there are different types of people There are Adamic people which the children of Israel could accept and even intermarry with and convert. But there were others who were considered cursed and who were to be destroyed, who were never to be allowed into the congregation according to the law, according to the law. But when the Israelites failed to keep them out, they were severely punished as it is described in the prophet's In places such as Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, Hosea chapter 5. When the children of Israel sinned, they were described as wicked. But they were also always offered an avenue to repentance and mercy. However, there are other people described as wicked who were never given such an opportunity. So I'm going to read Psalm 59, a psalm of David, and it's a short psalm, but I have to read it in its entirety to make this point. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. When we look at the, um, the people whom Saul, the king at the time that David wrote this psalm, whom Saul had in his hire against the, the priests of the children of Israel, and ultimately against David as well, we see men like Doeg, the Edomite. So we could see who David was concerned with when he asked Yahweh to save him from bloody men. I'm sure that Saul had a lot of Doeg, the Edomites, in his employ. Continuing with the psalm, they run and prepare themselves without my fault, Awake to help me, and behold, thou therefore, O Yahweh God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen, which is the word for nations. In this context, it's translated as heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for who, say they, does hear? But thou, O Yahweh, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget, meaning the children of Israel. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be taken in their pride. And for cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob unto the ends of the earth." And at evening let them return, and let them make a noise like a dog, and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down, for meat and grudge, if they be not satisfied. But I will sing of thy power, yeah, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense and the God of my mercy." In that psalm, David speaks of the wicked as all those of the heathen, which are the surrounding nations. Then there are the righteous, which are the children of Israel, regardless of whether any of them may be sinners. David prays for his own people. So there's wicked Israelites who may be sinners, but then there is the wicked who are to be All to be destroyed. The same thing is explained in Psalm 125, which is even shorter. So I will read all five verses. They that trust in Yahweh shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abides forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem. So Yahweh is round about his people from henceforth even forever. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands into iniquity. This is an important, this is a thread all throughout the books of the prophets and the Psalms in the Old Testament. And in the books of Moses as well, there's the righteous that can sin, and they're called to repentance. But there's the wicked that are wicked because of their inherent nature and character, and they're not the people of God. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. In other words, the wicked will not harm you unless you sin, lest the righteous Put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Yahweh, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, meaning the crooked ways of the wicked, Yahweh shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. And Christ uses that same phrase to describe those who would claim to do things in his name, but who were not his people in Matthew chapter seven. Yahweh shall lead them forth, meaning the righteous people who sin, with the workers of iniquity, meaning the people of the other races who are wicked. But peace shall be upon Israel. Those Israelites who turn aside to the ways of the wicked shall be punished along with the wicked. But peace shall be upon Israel, because in spite of their sins and in spite of their punishment, all Israel is promised salvation, mercy and salvation, which is made evident in many other words of both Christ and the prophets. So there are good Israelites.
1: A lot of people have trouble with that, that, that we were shown mercy no matter what. They always are willing to condemn our own brothers and sisters and that, you know, ultimately we'll all be forgiven. That, that's a very hard concept, even for people within CI, unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. And and that's a, a huge um, hurdle for me that I'm constantly trying to overcome. And I've explained in many podcasts, especially in my series on Paul's epistles, but with copious citations from scripture And they still don't get it because they've been trained. They've been programmed by these universalist religions that the world is good people going to heaven and bad people going to hell. And race has nothing to do with it. When in fact, race has everything to do with it. The world is one race of people who have eternal life and all the other races are bastards and can never do good in the eyes of God. And that's why Christ said in the gospel that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And he was speaking of races of men. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It doesn't matter what your behavior is. There are other aspects of salvation and our relationship with God where behavior does matter. But your eternal life is eternal as a matter of your inherent nature if your seed is in you as it says and as weissman failed to quote in or or to understand in first john chapter three if your seed is in you you cannot sin you were put into this world of sin as a trial and of course you transgress the law and sin along the way But if your seed is in you in the end, that sin is not going to be imputed to you. Because God put you here to try you so that you can learn what sin is and what the consequences are. Yeah, and who
1: determines right and wrong. Right. God determines right You know, all these people will think, oh, that's good, that's bad, he's good. Only Yahweh is capable of truly uh, determining, you know, what's good, what's bad, and who gets rewarded. We have to accept that.
0: Modern Christians treat God like Santa Claus, like he has a list of who's naughty and who's nice. That's how they treat him. And that's not how it is. He has one race that all these promises came to that he promised would have eternal life, period. He would save them from death. That's what the mercy of Christ is on a cross. And they want to negotiate that mercy away, like, oh, this one should have it because he didn't sin too bad but that one he's going to go to hell no that's not how it is there's evidently rewards and greater rewards for the righteous but that's eternal life is based on the creation of god not on the deeds of men men can't change the eternal nature of god's creation because they were good or bad or chose to do good or bad the wicked are the wicked period and Israelites, or Adamic people who do wickedly, are called to repentance and to obedience in Christ. And they will always have that call. And they might be punished over and over again if they don't answer the call. But the call is still there. The offer is still open because the offer is according to God's creation. Those Israelites who turn aside to the ways of the wicked shall be punished along with the wicked. But peace shall be upon Israel. All Israel is promised mercy and salvation, which is made evident in many, many places in Christ and the prophets. So there are good Israelites who generally do not sin, even though we all sin at one time or another. And there are wicked Israelites who are wicked because they follow the ways of that third group, which are naturally inherently wicked. By the time of David, most of the other Adamic nations had already mixed themselves together in whole or part with those non-Adamic nations, the Kenites, the Rephaim, and, and all those other groups that we see in Genesis chapters 14 and 15 who didn't come from Adam, who didn't descend from Noah. It was not only the Canaanites which had mixed with them, Rephaim giants ruled over the cities of the Sumerians and Babylonians also, which is evident in ancient writings such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Kenites were always moving and found among the Amorites and among other tribes of the East in later scriptures, the Assyrians defeated and absorbed the Hittite Empire into its own, along with the Canaanite Amorites and the Babylonians. Babylon itself was initially founded by Canaanites, but conquered by the Adamic Kassites, the Chaldeans of history. All of the Canaanites and Edomites were part of the later Assyrian and Persian empires. All of them, except those that may have migrated to Europe. And there were Canaanites in Europe as well. So the people whom these scriptures considered to be inherently wicked were mingled throughout the wider Adamic world. This is a phenomenon which Weissman and all mainstream denominational commentators fail to acknowledge, but which is indeed explained throughout the scripture. The distinction between the inherently righteous and the inherently wicked is made throughout Scripture, and they also all failed to recognize that. The truth has not changed in the New Testament. Rather, it is explained in the same terms and the churches had purposely refused to recognize it. This is all hard to explain in a single paragraph, but as Christ had explained in Matthew chapter 13, the whole world, was being sown with both wheat and tares right from the beginning. The parable of the wheat
1: and the tares. And those empires they didn't last very long, did they? The Babylonian, Assyrian and wasn't that where the original monetary system, the you know, the Federal Reserve type thing, <coughs> would you call it fractional banking? That's where it originated from. It must have been those Canaanites who invented it back in Babylonia and they keep trying to bring it Back all the time until eventually they got it in Europe.
0: Well, well, right. Um, fractional banking—that the the idea that you could take the same piece of gold and lay, loan it out ten times. That's what banks do today. That they invent money from thin air, from numbers. That they get a deposit, and this is in in the law, in international law, which is governs the. IMF. International law really doesn't exist. It's really um, a very complex collection of treaties and trade agreements and things like that. And they're called international law. So these treaties and, and trade agreements take the form of these agencies like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. It's in their regulations that banks can loan out at interest up to something like nine and a half times the amount of their deposits. So if, if I give you an ounce of gold on deposit and you're, you're going to pay me um, two or three percent annual interest on the value of the gold. You can loan out um, paper promises called money, which are what Federal Reserve notes really are. They're paper promises that aren't worth a damn. And we believe that they're money, so they act as money, and we exchange them as money. But they're really not money. They're, they're just hollow, empty paper promises with different amounts written on them, right, printed on them. Well, if I give you that ounce of gold, you could issue out um, these paper money promises. You could issue nine and a half times out the value of the gold. And you could collect interest at a higher interest rate on loans, 6%, 8%, 12%, whatever, while you're only paying me 3%. So you're making 100%, perhaps, in interest if you're charging 12%. And you loan the money out in the form of credit plastic credit cards, that's 12% interest on a credit card, is typical. Nine and a half times, you're getting more than a hundred percent back every year on the value of gold that isn't even yours, that you can loan out nine and a half times the value of. The banking system is as crooked as hell. And that is an ancient system yeah. modern um in in the medieval period when, when the feudal system was slowly being broken down by the sinister powers behind money and and the secret societies when the feudal system was on its way out especially in england which was one of the leaders in that area well the the anglo-saxon people the christian people of europe did not have laws governing loans mortgages um, finance banking because for a thousand years it was unlawful for christians to loan money at usury so they didn't need those laws but the jews demanded from the kings the jews in england began to demand from the kings legal protections for their usury, their loaning money at usury. And because the Anglo-Saxons had no laws, no historical body of law governing those things, the Jews had the Babylonian Shittar in their Talmud. I did a podcast on this 9, 10 years ago, a long podcast. The Jews had the Babylonian Shittar in their Talmud that became the basis for british commercial law back in the 1600s jewish law straight from the babylonian talmud mystery babylon right there there's your connections that's all we need to draw the line through scripture to exactly what it tells us mystery babylon but that's a digression.
1: Yeah, and you can see how these Canaanite, Edomite Jews can just swallow a nation, you know, a hundred years very quickly. They can just devour everything.
0: Absolutely. Because that's the inevitable conco- co- consequence of being the, the, the only um, entity legally entitled through the Federal Reserve to create money out of nothing and loan it out at interest. If I give you that ounce of gold and your law says that you could loan it out nine and a half times, you've created, okay, an ounce of gold, $2,000, nine and a half times, $19,000. You loan it out nine and a half times, you've just created $17,000 out of nothing and you're collecting interest on it. Now, not all banks have this power. Only certain banks are entitled with this. But that's the law. That's their law. That's the ratio. You could look it up. You could find out it's true. Fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking is based on that principle. And that's the banking that all the world's central banks practice in in accordance with the same international regulations. Okay, back to the scripture. The apostles of Christ and Christ himself sometimes used metaphors contrasting the inherently righteous with the inherently wicked. And now as we proceed with his book on page 34, Charles Weissman attempts to exploit that in order to support his assertion that words such as father or children Are to be interpreted metaphorically in the words of Christ rather than literally. So he makes a list of such uses, and he wrote on page 34 the phrases children of the devil or child of the devil are similar to children of wrath in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, children of light in John chapter 12 and Luke chapter 16. Children of the world in Luke chapters 16 and 20. Child of hell in Matthew chapter 23. Children of disobedience, disobedience which is found in Colossians chapter three, verse six, and son of perdition in John chapter 17 or in second Thessalonians chapter two. And after giving that short list of those examples, Weissman makes his own conclusion, and he says, such phrases are used figuratively to describe the nature or spiritual disposition of the people involved. No implication is intended as to descent or biological parents. No one is literally descended from wrath or light or hell or the world, or the devil. Devil is simply an idiom or expression for evil, ungodliness, that which is against God, or something abnormal. The phrase, you have a devil, in John chapter 8, verse 48, for example, means only that you are crazy. Likewise, the phrase, of the devil, means those who are evil or ungodly, In the things they do. And that's all bullshit. We've already shown that only a few times in the New Testament, men were called by the term devil. First, there is the devil of Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, who claimed to be able to give the world to Christ. And, And that could be half a podcast by itself, right? In my opinion, to keep it short... This devil was a man, and not some Satan, some Satanic spirit floating in the sky. But no matter how we wish to interpret it, the Greek word is diabolos, or false accuser. The next time a man is called a devil is in John chapter 6, and the word is the same, diabolos where, speaking of his disciples, Christ said to them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil, a false accuser? On both of these occasions, sin being violation of the law, as the Apostle John tells us, that sin is transgression of the law. No sin could be attributed to either of these men. What sin could be attributed to Judas up to John chapter 6? What sin could be attributed to the Diabolos or devil of Matthew chapter 4? None. It may be impious to question God, but the devil of Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4 was only tempting Christ, challenging him according to what the scriptures themselves had said about him and not really violating the law. Likewise, Judas was called a devil, but he was not convicted of any sin. Even his act of betrayal of Christ was not technically a transgression of the law. It's not. So these men must have been devils for reasons other than what Weissman asserts here. The third time a man is called a devil in the New Testament is the reference to Cain, chronologically the third time, is the reference to Cain in John 8.44. And Cain was a murderer. But many other betrayers and murderers in Scripture were never called devils. In fact, Moses and David were both murderers. And God chose them and blessed them and made them the leaders of his people. David murdered Uriah the Hittite. Hittite in that epithet means fearsome. Uriah the fearsome. Hittite is basically an adjective meaning fearsome. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. He wasn't a racial Hittite. And Moses murdered an Egyptian. But both Uriah and the Egyptian were ostensibly Adamic men. Many other sinners in Israel. Who did things far worse than David or Moses. Like Manasseh the king of Israel. The king of Judah who filled Judah with blood. From one end to the other. But those men were also never called devils. So Weissman is making a lie with his assertion. These men weren't called devil because, devils because they, called, they did evil things. The devil of Matthew 4 and, and Judas Iscariot, what evil things did they do at the point where Christ called them devils? Nothing. Weissman can't find or point out anything that they had done up to that point, nothing. So they had to be devils for another reason. Weissman is making a lie with his assertion. The only time men are called devils, the term is used of men who can be associated with the enemies of God and are clearly not of his people. But in his conclusion, Weissman said the phrase, you have a devil, in John eight forty eight, for example, means only that you are crazy. The word for devil is not Diabolus, but Dahemonian, the diminutive form of the word for demon. So even Weissman's comparison is nonsense, as the same word is not used where devil appears in those senses. And it is unfortunate that the King James translation did not distinguish between them, but Weissman himself should have known better, claiming to be some great scholar. Now let's look at the list of passages Weissman used where he attempts to prove this assertion. I will list the citations as Weissman did, but I might include surrounding verses if the context needs to be elucidated. And the assertion is that because certain people were called children of wrath, children of light, children of the world, child of hell, children of disobedience, son of perdition, that because those labels must be metaphorical or allegorical, that where Christ said to his adversaries in John 8 that they are um, the sons of their father, the devil, that that must also be allegorical, or metaphorical. And that's simply not true. And we're going to pull that apart. We're going to pull his entire list apart as we proceed. I don't know if you have anything to say in the meantime.
1: No, no, not on this verse. No, it's fine.
0: (laughs) Okay. Sorry to catch you by surprise, but some of these diatribes and digressions are pretty lengthy. So (laughs) I don't want to shut you out. Paul is explaining that all of the children of Israel, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ahead of myself now. I didn't even cite the first verse that Weissman listed. This is um, Ephesians chapter two, verse three. And I'm going to read from verse one, where Weissman only cited verse three. And Paul, of course, is speaking to Ephesians, where he says, and you he has quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. And conversation is in this sense an archaic term for conduct or behavior, among whom we also all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the others. Paul is explaining that all of the children of Israel who were taken into captivity or otherwise put out from ancient Israel had gone off into paganism. So they were accounted as wicked because they followed the ways of the wicked, as we have just seen explained in the 125th Psalm, where it said in verse 3, for the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, unless the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Yahweh, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their wicked ways, meaning the the, the wicked, the Lord, or Yahweh, shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. So you could take Ephesians chapter two, verse three, and the history of the ancient children of Israel, because these Ephesians were descendants of the ancient Israelites, or Paul wouldn't have been saying these things to, him, to them. And that could also be demonstrated in history, in the classics. And they were among The descendants of those people that turned away, turned aside to the ways of the wicked and went from being Israelites to being practicing pagans, for which reason they were alienated from God in the first place.
1: And none of the other Adamic races are ever called the children of disobedience. It can only be Israelites. Well, and that shows clearly that Paul's talking to Israelites.
0: Absolutely. The children of wrath are the objects of of the wrath of God, which is described in the words of the prophets that is going to come upon all of the other races. But the children of Israel are the vessels of mercy, the people of God's promises who are going to be granted mercy and receive mercy in the day of wrath when he takes vengeance upon his enemies. And that's all throughout the prophets, especially in Obadiah. But it's in practically all of them. It's mentioned at some point or another. In Christ, the children of Israel have mercy and a path by which to return to God. So, Paul continues to explain in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, the next verse after the one cited by Wiseman. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, prophecies fulfilling the, the reconciliation of the children of Israel, even when we were dead in sins. So, even when they were dead in sins, they were not children of wrath has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Grace is a matter of prophecy that Yahweh would have grace to the children of Israel and to the children of Israel alone, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through christ jesus so there are children of wrath and disobedience and then there are children who are sitting dead in sins and god has mercy on them but he doesn't have mercy on the children of wrath and paul contrasts them the children of disobedience the children of wrath are the other races whom god has rejected as well as the children of Israel who follow after them. They can be as children of wrath, but God offers them mercy. And they are described in verse 5 of the 125th Psalm that they're going to be punished along with the children of wrath of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. They are the wicked whom Yahweh will punish, the other races who are offered no mercy or reconciliation to God. The heathen we saw described as the wicked in the fifty-nine Psalm. And this is consistent with the purpose of Christ as it is announced in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, where it is said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is, this, these words are attributed to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who understood that this prophecy was being fulfilled. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, the children of wrath, and from the hand of all that hate us, the wicked of the Psalms. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Well, guess what? In first century Judea, the Israelites were under the hand of the Edomites, their enemies. The father of John the Baptist sure as hell knew it. Charles Weissman could never figure it out. 2,000 years of Christian interpreters have missed it completely. No, they haven't missed it completely. They've been following the teachings of the Jews for the last 1,700 years. Those church fathers who took off into Gnosticism. and and Greek philosophy, instead of understanding the historic proof, the historic truth of the scriptures. Paul was announcing this same thing. He was announcing the same thing that we see in Luke 1 to the Ephesians. So in verse 16, further on in that same chapter, he spoke of reconciliation to God through Christ, saying that he came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, the Israelites of the dispersions, the 12 tribes, and to them that were nigh, the Israelites who remained in Palestine. This refers to both the Israelites in Judea and the Israelites scattered in the captivities. That is the same peace mentioned in the last words of the 125th Psalm where peace is to Israel. But in the last words of Isaiah chapter 48, We read, there is no peace, saith Yahweh, unto the wicked. I don't know if you have any comments on Ephesians chapter 2, but it's fully consistent. Paul's teachings are fully consistent with the prophecies. Once you realize this message is a message of, this gospel message is a message of reconciliation for the scattered Israelites to God and a promise of that ultimate destruction of the wicked, which we see in the Revelation,
1: was uh, Ephesians. Was that the location in Anatolia, or, or was it Greece? That was where the lost tribes had resettled back, hadn't they?
0: Now, Ephesus was in um, <clears throat> Ephesus was an ancient city in Anatolia, and, and Paul was addressing Greeks. Probably Greeks and Romans in ephesus it it was inhabited by um, Macedonians in the Macedonian period. It was inhabited by Dorians at an at an early period um, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head who the original founders of Ephesus were, which Greek tribe had founded them, but Paul is ostensibly he understands that he's writing to a portion of the scattered 12 tribes now some of the scattered 12 tribes were scattered um, all the way back to the time of the exodus as we've seen in the histories of diodorus siculus and the earlier authors writers that he had cited not all of the people who left egypt at the time of the Exodus, had followed Moses, a lot of them went by sea and founded cities in various places in Greece and elsewhere. And among those cities they founded are Thebes, which was called a Phoenician city later on, and, and um, the, the Mycenae and the civilization of the Danans and the Peloponnesus, and Troy. And, and uh, eventually the, the colony of Dardans, which became known as the Trojans, and later split In some of them had migrated to Italy and much later became known as Romans. And some of them had migrated north into Macedonia, where they were named Illyrians. So there was a dispersion of Israelites abroad that didn't follow Moses from the time of the Exodus. Later waves of hebrews came out of palestine and and one of those waves was the dorians who invaded greece several generations after the Peloponnesian wars during the classical era ephesus was one of the cities of the ionian league so it was probably an ionian city at that time later it was inhabited by it, it was the principal city of of that part of asia I believe it was the capital of Roman Asia, and it would have been, it was early on inhabited by Macedonians as well as by Romans. Paul had, a, um, Paul had spent three years of his ministry in Ephesus which ended after the silversmiths at the temple of Artemis wanted to lynch him. They basically wanted to lynch his ass and get rid of him because he was preaching against idolatry and they made all their money from producing idols.
1: Yeah, true Christianity is not very profitable for, <laughs> for those type of people.
0: The Apostle John was, was um, in the reign of Domitian, was exiled to Patmos, an island off the coast, and was said to have returned to Ephesus, and from Ephesus had written his gospel and written out the revelations that he had, the book of Revelation being the result of revelations he had on Patmos, at least for the most part. So John spent his final years in the 90-something AD, because he was a very young man during the ministry of Christ. He would have been in his mid to late 80s, probably, in the last decade of the first century AD, and he spent his final years at Ephesus.
1: Also, that's interesting. It's, um, John's gospel was probably spread by those people then, the, the ministry that Paul originally set up.
0: Yes, that's that evidently seems to be true, yes. But the Ephesians in the Revelation were also criticized for having left their first love, which means that they that, that John was they they were being scolded in the Revelation for leaving the Christianity that Paul had founded there. They departed from it. They went off into heresy. Whatever that heresy is, it, it's in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 2. So John was there, but he was criticizing them for that in Revelation. Or at least Christ was criticizing the Ephesians for that through the mouth of the apostle. <clears throat> Turning to Weissman's example... <clears throat> In John chapter 12, verse 36, we will read from verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up, or crucified? They knew what he meant by that. Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while the light is with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. While you have light, believe in the light that you may be children of the light. These things spoke Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. So Weissman imagines that because Christ told these people that if they walk in the light, they may be children of the light, that that proves that where he told his adversaries, they're children of the devil, that they're not really children of the devil. They're, some, they're just bad people behaving badly. They're only being disobedient. Here Christ was repeating allegories, which were made in reference to the children of Israel. In the words, they were first made in the words of the prophet Isaiah, regarding the promise of redemption for the children of Israel. For example, we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. Thus saith Yahweh God, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, He that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee, speaking to the children of Israel, and speaking to his Messiah, because this is a messianic prophecy. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, and now the purpose of the Messiah, to open the blind eyes. To bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Then a little further on, still speaking in reference to the children of Israel, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. So Paul of Tarsus used the same allegory of scattered Israelites turned to Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he wrote, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Christ being the light come into the world, and the light of men, as John explained in chapter 1 of his Gospel, The children of Israel turning to obedience in Christ are children of light, so long as they are his sheep that hear his voice. That does not mean that anyone else can claim to do good and be children of the light, as they were never invited into the light in the first place. For that reason, as we have explained several times already in this series. We read in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? So we see that these people could claim to be believers in Christ. They could appear to do good doing all these things in his name. But they're not children of the light. Christ says, and then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And and what did we read of the psalm? In the wicked, when the children of Israel, when children of the righteous, turn to the ways of the wicked, as for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, meaning the crooked ways of the wicked, the sodomy of the sodomites and the perversions of the jews and everything we see around us today the lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity but peace shall be upon israel so these people could claim to be christians even but christ won't accept them in the end because he never knew them if we read the words of the prophets The children of Israel are the only family upon the entire earth that God claimed to know, that he admitted knowing. Of course, he's God. He's omniscient. He knows what every man is and what's in them, but he never acknowledges any other race except the children of Israel. You could know somebody and not acknowledge them, count them as nothing, because You don't want to know them. So we read in Malachi chapter 4. I'm sorry, go on.
1: I was just going to say, and heaven, it's his kingdom. He can let in whoever he wants. He's under no obligation just because we think someone was good that they deserve a place in there. It's completely up to him. We have no right to demand anything.
0: Right. He's already defined who he's going to accept and who he's not going to accept. And we can't change that. Our sin's not going to change it. We may have no reward in his kingdom if we don't do well, but we can't change that. And even those in in his parables, we see that even his rewards are given out in ways that we don't understand. Like the men that showed up at last hour to work in the vineyard, and they received the same penny that the workers who had been there from 6 a.m. had received, and worked for 12
1: hours. That would be people who like turn to Christianity at the end of their life or halfway through their life or, you know, right from the beginning, right? That they would still get get a reward.
0: Well, Well, right. I mean, it's indicative of that, right? It represents that. So we read in Malachi chapter four, speaking of these wicked. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud. Yeah. And all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now these must be all the heathens of Psalm 59, the wicked. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, Christ the light in which the children of Israel shall walk. Because we're all destined to walk in that light if we are of his children. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for there shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. And again, all the heathen, all the other nations of the 59th Psalm are those wicked that are going to be tread down. And there are many other passages of Scripture which support that. And I think I cite a few of them later here, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. Next, Weissman cites Luke chapter 16, verse 8, where it says, And the Lord, meaning the master of an estate. And the Lord commended the unjust steward. Because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And Weissman doesn't understand this parable either. We have just quoted the King James Version of that passage. But we contend with that reading. The phrase, in their generation, is very poorly translated. And the pronoun actually means their own, not just their. In their own generation. But if a generation is all people living together at the same time, it makes no sense whatsoever. None at all. That word, generation, primarily means race. So the Greek of Luke chapter 16 verses 8 and 9 should properly be read. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely. Because the sons of this age, or the children of this world, as the King James has it, are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. That's exactly what the Greek phrase means. Towards their own race. And I say to you, shall you make, and this is a hypothetical question, a rhetorical question. Shall you make for yourselves, friends, from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? And, of course, the wicked have no eternal dwelling for anyone. And the parable teaches that the children of Israel, the sons of light, should do well rather than enjoy the temporary rewards which the wicked gain in their treachery. Christ is making a comparison and explaining that the sons of this age naturally benefit and favor one another. Something which the children of light, the Adamic children of God, have always failed to do. The sons of this age are wiser towards their own race than we are. I can't prove my explanation of that paragraph and that verse in a single Couple of par- or or a single short paragraph here. I can't explain that verse in a single short paragraph here. It's not possible. We have an entire explanation of our translation of that passage in a paper at Christigenia titled "Translating Luke sixteen eight and nine: The Unrighteous Steward." It's not possible to repeat here, but we explain the translation word by word in a podcast which is available in our commentary on the gospel of Luke chapter 16 and of course all of that will be linked in the notes of this presentation
1: Christ it's interesting is, that Christ actually compliments them for uh, you know collaborating looking after each other quickly putting grudges aside just so that they can ally and subvert our nations whilst we are always squabbling amongst ourselves you know, our kingdoms always have all throughout history when we should have always just been working together to get rid of the Jew.
0: Well, well right. And that's the analogy. The sons of this age, the, the, the wicked, they naturally gravitate to and benefit one another all the time. You could read that in today's newspapers. You read a newspaper written, you read an article written by the Wall Street Journal and I would bet this is 90% of the time, 90% of their articles. I observed this myself when I read the Wall Street Journal daily in the 19, from the mid 1980s until um, probably 2004, 2005. I read the Wall Street Journal faithfully for years as my primary source of news. And it taught me a lot, but I didn't learn any of it until. I learned Christian identity and two seed line. That's when it all hit me, right? So you pick out an article from the Wall Street Journal, and usually it's written by a Jewish reporter or a Judaized reporter. And whenever there's an expert in any field quoted for any reason, whether it be science or economics, it's almost always a Jew. It's like if they need to hear from an astronomer, they call their rabbi at the synagogue and he gives them the name of the local synagogue, the the local astronomer that attends that synagogue. That's what it seems like. If they need an economist, they call their rabbi, he gives them the name of, of, of an economist and they call him and they ask him for his expert opinion on such and such. That's what it seems like. They got their own cabal. And when they quote experts on any particular topic, nine times out of 10, that expert's a Jew. They favor each other constantly in every area of life, in business, in in social life, in economics. We don't do that. We look at the world as egalitarians and want to treat everybody equally. So yeah, you could quote a H.K. Edgerton a black expert on on the confederacy and and they they nationalists down south here invite him to speak at their rallies all the time it's disgusting but they have to fall all over themselves to show that they love everybody and they're not racist but these jews um they go far out of their way to practice their racism that's the parable of the unrighteous steward The unrighteous steward is commended for acting as he should, even though it's to our detriment. He acted, a a snake has a certain behavior built into it, and if a snake starts to act like a turtle, something's wrong with that snake. Well, (laughs) we are expected to prefer one another, and we don't. Something's wrong with us. We have to root out that disease. That's basically what the parable of the unrighteous steward is all about. The snake is commended for acting like a snake. It did the right thing because it acted according to its inherent character. And we don't. We suppress our inherent character so that we could prove to the world that we're good. And actually, we're acting in a manner that God considers evil. He didn't create egalitarianism. He didn't make all races equal. He told the children of Israel that if they kept his law, that he would raise them above every nation on the earth. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what Christ commands his people to keep his commandments. And he elevates us above other people. And that's the way he wants it old testament and new but this theology which quacks like weissman have dreamt up and and accepted which really comes from the gnostics and the universalist catholics pervert and corrupt the word of god and make it into something that it's not it's about believers and unbelievers and people that are good and people that do bad that follow the wrong philosophy or whatever and that's bullshit that's not what it's about the bible is about one thing the objective of the gospel is about one thing only bringing the scattered children of israel back to be reconciled to god in christ period that is the message that paul of tarsus had attested to in acts chapter 26 the hope of the 12 tribes And you don't see mainstream, denominational, universalist, Catholics, or Protestants speak or preach on Acts chapter 26. They avoid it. They have to. Luke chapter 20, verse 34, is the next example which Weissman cited. And Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage in the allegory in luke chapter 16 where the sons of this age are set in contrast as a race the word race is there explicitly it's just translated as generation in the king james but it makes no sense as generation where the sons of this age are set in contrast as a race opposed to sons of light. It is clear in the context that two different races are being compared where we see the Greek phrase, which we translate as towards their own race. And that's exactly what it means. But here in this context, in Luke 20, it is clear that the comparison only refers to people born in this present world as opposed to those who are able to take part in the resurrection. Not all allegories are equal. Perhaps the allegory sons of this age and sons of light in Luke chapter 8 may not be interpreted in a racial sense, only if Christ himself had not said towards their own race. But here in Luke 20, it is clear that Christ is comparing people in a general sense who are born into this world. But then, where he compares them to people who have a part in the resurrection, he narrows that to they which shall be accounted worthy, where we see that the children of this world can refer to anyone in general. So we see that the way an allegory should be interpreted depends on the context in which it is spoken. Therefore, all of Weissman's examples are invalid, since each of these phrases are spoken in different contexts, and some of them do indeed make distinctions according to race and not to mere belief. Weissman's next example, Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, which is a convert. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. The word for hell here is not Hades, but Gehenna. Gehenna is a compound word derived from the Greek word for land, which is gay. Believe it or not, that's how it's pronounced. And that's the word that we have, um, the words geography, because the G is not pronounced hard anymore in English, but in Greek it was, and in Latin it was, that soft G, that is only a modern um, innovation. Geography, geometry, all come from that the stem of that Greek word gay, which is G, a G, and an eta, right? And sometimes an eta should be transliterated as an A and sometimes as an E. It's, the Greeks had an A and an E, but the eta is kind of like an in-between, a hybrid vowel, if you will, right? So that gay is land in Greek. And that gave us geometry and geography and all all of the related words that began in G-E-O came from this word land. So, ge or gay and a Hellenized form of the Old Testament name, Hinnom, that's where Gehenna comes from. So it means land of Hinnom. This is the Old Testament valley of the son of Hanam, where, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, we see that the ancient Israelites had sacrificed their children in the fire to the idol Moloch, as the Canaanites had done before them. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we read that when Ahaz became king of Judah, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Baalim. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. Ahaz was a wicked king, but he was never called a devil. (laughs) Take note of that. Even though he was burning children in the fires of Moloch, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Ahaz was never called a devil. Essentially, by calling them the children of Gehenna, Christ is telling these Pharisees that their destiny is in the lake of fire that they will be destroyed in the fire and that their proselytes are even worse than they are but are also destined for that same fire because they're children of Gehenna. In other words, they will not have mercy from God and will not be forgiven their sins. So they must not be true Israelites as all Israel had been promised salvation and forgiveness. The Pharisees at the time, the same Pharisees who had previously acquiesced to the conversion of the Edomites, were baptizing converts of any race or nation in water, circumcising them and declaring them to be Israelites, contrary to the laws of Yahweh God. So universalism through baptism and magical conversion was begun by the Pharisees and continued through the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. In another paper, Christagenia, titled Baptism in What, we explain this method of Jewish proselytizing from the writings of John Lightfoot, the 17th century English cleric, in volume two of his Commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica. That's where the practice came from. It came from the Pharisees, and Yahshua Christ upbraided them for it in the New Testament. But the Catholic Church...
1: So they corrupted the Levitical washing of the priests and the food. Right. And made that into uh, cleansing someone and magically turning them into an Israelite.
0: Exactly. There is no... Um, baptism of anyone to become Israelites or to become righteous or to become um, clean or accepted by God in the Old Testament, except when an Israelite is defiled for some reason, then he's told to go wash and wait overnight before he could come back into the congregation. That's the only time when you're already an Israelite. But you, Because you're an Israelite by birth, but you've been defiled by touching a dead body or, or, or um, some other natural biological defilement where you might be exposed to germs or disease. And, and you're told to go wash and to spend a certain amount of time outside of town before you come back in to, to the congregation or to your tents or whatever. And that's just common sense um, hygiene. That's the only baptism of people in the Old Testament is common sense hygiene, not for conversion from paganism or something else, not to make somebody an Israelite who was not born an Israelite. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. And the Roman Catholic Church later adopted the same practice. It's a pagan practice. It's not Christian. It's not Israelite, not at all, and it's certainly not godly. The next passage Weissman cites, Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, and we will read from verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, Paul speaking to scattered Israelites at Colossae, which... I believe it was in Macedonia. Am I wrong? was Colossae on the coast of Macedonia. I'm trying to look this up real quick. I could be wrong. No, I'm wrong. It was in ancient Phrygia in Asia Minor. Now, ancient Phrygia. This is interesting because Paul doesn't call these people Galatians. But Phrygia was... um, Well, it was originally inhabited by of people called Phrygians, whom Homer related to the, and other classical poets had related to the Thracians, saying that they came from ancient Thrace. Now, the Thracians are Japetites in Genesis chapter 10, but the Phrygians were more or less destroyed. King Midas, the king that everything he touched turned to gold, was the last king of the Phrygians. His tomb has been located by archaeologists, I believe, or a tomb believed to be his. Well, well, he was the last king of the Phrygians, and the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, a great number of them were called Cimmerians by the Greeks. They would eat the Cymry the House of Omri of the Assyrian inscriptions. The Cimmerians crossed Anatolia and went up to Europe through the, through the region by the Black Sea in the late 7th century BC. And they destroyed Phrygia along the way and ended the empire of King Midas. And supposedly, Phrygia was completely destroyed. And 400 years later, when Gauls crossed again, when the Galatahi, the descendants of those cimmerians crossed back into Asia Minor again and made war against the Greeks and the Italic kingdom, which was, um, its capital was Pergamos. They were defeated by the Italids, by the Italic kings, and they were forced to settle, or they were offered the land of ancient Phrygia, the same land their ancestors had destroyed 400 years sooner. So the Galatahi that had reinvaded this area of Anatolia held by the Greeks had settled in Phrygia in the um, late 3rd century BC, I believe it was, and that founded the what later became known as the Roman province of Galatia. So Colossae is in or at least near the province of Galatia in the ancient land of Phrygia, and it may have been inhabited, I'm not sure, by Macedonians. Paul's not calling these people Galatians. They were probably Greeks and probably Macedonians or Dorians. I'm not entirely sure. I would have to go back. All of these Greek cities all the cities of anatolia and and um even e- even of the greek mainland were settled either by macedonians in the hellenistic period or by dorians or ionians in the pre-hellenistic in the classical period and they all it, they're scattered right there, there were like at least 10 dorian cities in anatolia but a lot of them were close to or within proximity of cities that had been founded by Phoenicians or Ionians. So it's it's very difficult to remember which cities belong to which tribe. It is. But by this time, after the Hellenistic period, many of these cities had Dorians or Macedonians in them, and when the Romans came along, Roman Rome planted many colonies of Romans throughout these cities. So what we're probably looking at is a mixed population of Dorians and other Greeks and Romans all in one and Macedonians all in each city. So that might be confusing, but the history is is very long and confusing. (laughs) And even when you know, um, after so many centuries of war and occupation, you still can't be entirely sure of which tribe, it, which tribe inhabited each city. It's um, clear that Athens was inhabited by Ionians and and Sparta by Dorians and Corinth by Dorians. Some cities are more cut and dry and easier to determine than others, according to their history. So I'm sorry that was another long digression. So I'm going to re cite Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 well from verse 4 when Christ who is our life shall appear so Paul is is confident he's speaking to scattered Israelites and not all of the tribes at the time were scattered Israelites a lot of them were Jepethites or other Shemites or other people when Christ shall appear then shall you also appear with him in glory Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, speaking about the physical lusts, which are fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in which you also walked some time, that actually means walked at one time. When you lived in them, when you lived in those things, this also goes back to that 125th Psalm that the the wicked don't harm the children of Israel unless the children of Israel turn to the ways of the wicked. Well, all of the children of Israel were pagans for anywhere's from 500 600 years up to as many as 1500 years before Christ those who departed from Egypt went right off into paganism when they founded their cities in 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 Greece and Anatolia they went right into paganism and those who stayed with Moses but were departed what were departed in the interim, like the Dorians, had went off into paganism. And ultimately, all of the children of Israel and Judah, taken in the Assyrian captivities, went off into paganism. So it happened at different times, but they all became pagan. They all lived in those things. They all lived in those things which Paul had spoke of here. The children of wrath are not merely children who do not believe or obey god rather they are the races who have been who have not been promised mercy forgiveness salvation redemption resurrection eternal life and all the other things promised to the children of israel and the wider adamic race the children of wrath are the heathen of the 59th psalm the nations which in the end are all going to be destroyed There are many other psalms and prophecies where that same promise is made. The children of Israel, during the time of their disobedience and captivity, and before receiving the gospel of Christ, were walking among the children of wrath, practicing the same ancient paganism and engaging in the same immoral pagan practices they had learned from the ancient Canaanites that they failed to exterminate. That is exactly what Paul is describing here, the children of disobedience. The wrath will come on the children of disobedience. Whether they're Israelites or not, they're going to be punished for their disobedience. But if they're Israelites, they also have an avenue of repentance and mercy and forgiveness that the others don't have. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 31, where Yahweh is addressing the children of Israel. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. And will not leave the altogether unpunished. In other words, the children of Israel being scattered are going to be punished for their sins, but for correction so that they could be preserved. But he's going to make a full end of all the nations where they were scattered. And to a great degree, we're still awaiting that. Now, in Christ, reconciliation and a cessation of punishment is offered to those same children of Israel, but not to the others, whom Paul called children of wrath. Weissman failed to cite Ephesians chapter 5, which offers us another example of this, where Paul had said, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. In other words, there's some people that don't have mercy but they do all these things, but they don't have mercy. They can't be reconciled to God. They weren't his in the first place. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Only the children of Israel was offered the light. The others were never offered that light. They could claim to believe Christ, and he's going to say, get away from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. If all men sin, then an unclean person is a person whom Christ had not cleansed of sin, as he promised only to cleanse the children of Israel. Therefore, the other races are unclean. And the New Testament is entirely consistent with the Old Testament, because the other races remain unclean. We're almost finished with the material that we had um, originally planned to finish for this 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 presentation. So I'll probably just finish with it. It's three short paragraphs. Do you have anything? I'll just proceed.
1: John, not no, yet, yeah, but at the end.
0: I'm sorry. Okay. John chapter 17, and and this is Weissman's next example. From verse 12, I will quote from verse 11. Christ is speaking to his disciples. And now I am no more in the world, but these, his disciples, are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Christ is making that last famous prayer before he's arrested. Keep through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here Christ is speaking of his own disciples, and the one which was lost was also called a devil, which is Judas Iscariot. Here, being referred to as a son of perdition, Judas has still not been accused or convicted of any transgression of the law. The act of his having betrayed Christ had not even been completed at this point. He's not yet in the garden where Judas gives him the famous kiss of betrayal. The truth is that at least circumstantially, it can be proven that Judas was an Edomite and not an Israelite. And for that reason, Christ chose him, being a devil, that he would be betrayed by one of his enemies. As the scripture says, and as Christ had cited in John chapter 13, he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now this leaves us with one last passage cited by Weissman which is second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 so we will stop here and discuss that last passage after summarizing what we have said in response to Weissman's lies up to this point all of Weissman's examples all of them are invalid none of them prove that children of the devil aren't physical descendants of the devil and we have a lot more proof in that regard which we still haven't even mentioned or spoken of a lot more some of it weissman brings up so i've been waiting for that time so we still have a long way to go before we finish even our address of chapter four of weissman's book we might be here a while truth Fids. i hope you have the patience to see this through <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's fine. I'm really looking forward to it. And you, you can, over and over again, you can see that nothing Wiseman says ever holds up. His view on the Bible just doesn't two seed lines.
0: I'm sorry, I lost you right after his view of the Bible. You cut out for a moment.
1: Oh, his view on the Bible just absolutely doesn't make sense. He cannot, over and over again, it just doesn't add up. There very clearly are two seed lines all the way throughout the Bible.
0: Absolutely. Why would Paul even talk about children of wrath if so many um, tribes of Israel? Because Paul brought the gospel to um, quite a few people, but he didn't bring the gospel. The gospel had hardly reached a fraction of the children of Israel by the time of the end of Paul's ministry. So, if so many of the children of Israel who are offered repentance, and who are never called devils, who are never called children of wrath anywhere in Scripture, even when they were disobedient. Even if they were children of disobedience because they were in apostasy, they were never called devils or children of wrath. They were never inherently wicked. They were always offered mercy and forgiveness and a path to return to God. If so many Israelites were still in sin, why would Paul even mention children of wrath, children who would be the object of God's wrath? And Paul often spoke in those terms. There was always that class of people who Paul understood were rejected by God and who were not offered mercy and forgiveness and who would be destroyed. And Post all those speaks.
1: regions in the Middle East, like the Parthian Empire, um, they were briefly Christian, but very quickly it all collapsed, which you can clearly see is a racial thing. And as it moved through northern Africa into Spain, you know, the Muslim invasion, it persisted. They never were Christian. It must be racial.
0: Absolutely. It, even the people that, according to. Um... 2 Peter chapters, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4, even the people, the Adamic people who died in the flood of Noah were preached to by Christ and reconciled to God. They were Adamic. They had the same eternal Adamic spirits that the children of Israel had. There's wider um, promises to the entire race, which start in Genesis chapter 3 concerning eternal life through Christ. So it's not only the children of Israel who had that offer, but the other races do not have it. And it's they who were supposed to be exterminated, at least an example of them, a sampling of them, as the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan. They were told to exterminate every one of them. They're not the only non-Adamic races. They're not the only races related to the Rephaim and the Kenites but the ones in Palestine the children of Israel were told to exterminate all of them and I am certain that if they had been successful as the children of Israel grew and spread out they'd have pushed the others out of the way or exterminated them too but they failed in Palestine so how could the will of God be further revealed it wasn't until you get to the prophets Where God says in Jeremiah that he will make a full end of all the nations. Nations are people groups, they're not governments. When Jeremiah wrote those words, Goyim meant groups of people, related groups of people, groups of related people is a nation or a Goy, a a family group of people is a nation. God would make a full end of all the nations, people groups, where Israel would be scattered as he punished Israel. And that punishment is still going on because all of, our rep- all of our people have not yet repented.
1: Yeah, and we look forward to that great day. I-, I like the bit in David's psalm where he says, the Lord will laugh as he destroys them all.
0: Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and David's talking about the non-Israelite, and they're non-Adamic once we identify them. People groups in the vicinity of ancient Israel and within ancient Israel, as he also warred with the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the taking of Jerusalem, things like that. They were in ancient Israel. The Canaanites were never exterminated. The the Gibeonites and other groups were still there, and they were Canaanites. Okay. Thank you for joining us, and I gather I will see you here next week and
1: yep definitely uh,
0: we're praise not always,
1: god of israel not the god of all the devils out there thanks bill thanks for having me
0: absolutely thank you praise christ